Hey there, Discerning ThoughtBot podcast listener. I just wanted to take a quick moment to ask for your feedback. There's so many cool things that we'd love to do with all the shows and want to know how you feel about our sponsor reads and the possibility of starting a Patreon-style campaign to make them all possible. If you could head over to tbot.io slash survey for a super short questionnaire, your input would be much appreciated. That link again is tbot.io slash survey. And hey, thanks. Take two. Can you hear me? Okay. It's recording me. Let's try and call Sean and see if it kernel panics again. Hello. All right. It didn't kernel panic. That's always a good start. We're off to a good start. This podcast is flying. (laughs) Not crashing the computer does tend to be a prerequisite. (laughs) I was feeling good. I was like, all right, I got this all set up. I think I have everything checked correctly. I did my own little check to make sure it was recording me locally. Everything was good. And then as soon as the Skype rang, it was like, nope, (laughs) no podcast for you. Well, at least it came back up and didn't panic again. But who knows? If it panics again, that's just going to be the end of the show. And we'll just release what we have. (laughs) What's going on? What do you want to talk about today? Spaceships, planes. That's what's on my mind. Oh, I can talk to you about space for a second. Okay. Two things. One, are we living in a black hole? No. How do you know? Well, we don't because we don't know what happens inside of a black hole. So for all we know, our universe is the center of a black hole. But that same logic can be applied to like literally anything. (laughs) There's no evidence to to show that we are living in a black hole. (laughs) Okay. Well, you can't prove that we're not like that's not evidence that it's a that is a thing. Okay. Number two, this is related to the black hole thing. And topical with our uh, Elon Musk talk in the other episode. Are we living in a simulation? Again, you, you can't prove that we're not, but there's no evidence to show that we are. So the evidence to show that we are, evidence, evidence, come on, there's no evidence. Anyway, uh, like I tried to really understand, like, why would anybody think this is true, right? And so what I found was a, a very reductionist argument, which is... And I'm totally going to screw this up because I'm not the space guy. You're the space guy. Um, is this the Elon Musk argument? I don't know if it's his, his argument or what, but it's basically like... The one that he makes, though? If you, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, right, sorry. That's not where I got it from, but it was some other person on the internet. I think it was Brian Green. Anyway. Anyway, continue. Um, we'll, we'll cut that out. <laughs> so, so the argument is if you take for granted that we could progress technology to the point where you could make a convincing simulation of the universe, right... So if you say that technology can progress to this point, then you are also probably ready to admit that we could create simulated universes much more easily than we could create actual universes. Right. And so if we're willing to say that technology, like if we can say that it can progress that far, and if it does progress that far, we can create thousands and millions of these simulated universes, then if you're willing to say that we perhaps have progressed that far, or somebody has progressed that far, then mathematically, we are living in a simulation just by like the probability, right? Of like sure. real I mean, universe that, versus that, that fake That also universe. makes the assumption that something inside of a simulation would have what we would call consciousness and or self-awareness. Sure. It's a reasonable assumption to make, but that's, again, an assumption. Have you watched Westworld? I have watched Westworld. Oh my God, that show is so good. So good. <laughs> We should talk about programming at some point, but uh, if you haven't watched Westworld, then you have an HBO subscription, or perhaps you should go and get HBO now because Westworld is really good. Yeah, and it's kind of like living in a simulation, kind of. Kind of. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you think I I don't remember his name the main like the main scientist character? Yeah, I don't. Not uh, not the old one. Right, the guy who's like constantly talking to the farmer's daughter. Yeah, that guy. Do you think he is a robot? No. I don't Just thinks he's a robot. I didn't I didn't realize that um this was the kind of show I was gonna have to have theories about until about two and a half episodes in and I was like, Oh, oh, and then I looked and I saw that JJ Abrams is involved in the show and I was like, Oh, oh that explains it. Okay. This is a show I'm gonna have to like Google things for and like come up with yeah. theories. But I'm not there yet. I'm not prepared to have any theories. Although I do like if you like programming, there's a lot of good programming humor in the show and you're gonna enjoy it. Because it's like like 
there's a, a scene in the third episode, which I won't spoil, but it has to do with an axe at a campground. And it's just like, oh, yeah, it's hilarious. If you're a pro, you're like, oh, yeah, that would definitely if if we had created this simulation like this, that would definitely be a bug that happens. Like, yep. <laughs> so anyway, interesting. Yeah, show. no, it's clear that somebody put a reasonable amount of thought into making that aspect of it reasonably believable, which is always nice. Yes. And humorous to people who know what's going on. Yeah. So, yeah, living in a simulation. Elon Musk, the reason why I brought up Elon Musk is he's like a crazy billionaire guy who's spending some money to have people go and study whether or not, like come up with a way we could test whether or not we were in a simulation. And Right. Well, and that's, and he makes roughly the same argument, which is that technology will, uh, like, you can't argue that technology won't progress to that point. And if you argue that it can progress that to that point, then it is more likely that it already has progressed to that point. <laughs> Um, I love this stuff. He's uh, there's there's a big Tesla announcement coming in a few hours. Yeah, maybe we should just make this a live stream. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm hyped. It's the thing he was saying. He tweeted like, "This is what I was alluding to earlier when I said part two, at, which after the last after the Model Three announcement, he was tweeting, "This is the first half. The second half is going to be a little bit more out there." So I'm interested to see what's a little bit more out there for Elon Musk. <laughs> Some sort of home solar thing using the Tesla batteries and the Solar City stuff. I'm hoping it's it's heads up display like projected onto the windshield, and that's why there's no instrument panel. Okay. Um, well, we'll see. We'll do a podcast about that next week. We did space simulations, Westworld. Um, we should talk about some programming. Should we? Yeah. I don't know. I'm I'm getting on a plane in to to Moscow in like five hours, so I'm I'm just in full like working on my talk, which is about spaceships now. <laughs> uh, no, well, so. It's a keynote, and so I was thinking I was going to talk about Rails and how do we keep Rails relevant going forward? How has Rails kept relevant going forward? And from like sort of a project management perspective, look at how it succeeded and how we can improve. Because I, I don't know, it's my last conference talk that I'm giving for quite some time, so I kind of wanted to do something a little bit more. That and the fact that's keynote, I figured you know a little bit more like of a lofty subject, I guess. Right, that makes sense. Why is this your last conference talk? Because I'm having a baby. Oh, right. Well, your wife is. Yes. Yes, we're having a baby together. together. Yes. It took, it, took, it took both of us. <laughs> <laughs> when, you're, when you're older, I'll explain how this works. Biology with Sean and Derek. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anyway, the talk wasn't quite coming together. I was kind of complaining to Tessa about it. And she's like, well, why don't you, why don't you throw in some spaceships? Mm-hmm. Like, you know what? Actually... This is going to be my last conference talk for a while. I've always wanted to talk about spaceships on stage. So, yeah, I think I'll throw in some spaceships. And it's in Russia. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, actually, I could talk about the R-7. Because the R-7 was the first intercontinental ballistic missile developed by Russia. And that turned into the launch vehicle used for Sputnik. And that same basic launch vehicle has continued to be in use. It's now known as the Soyuz. But it's the same. It's the same basic design. The engines are of the same pedigree. It's just the one craft that has evolved continuously since 1953 and has remained relevant through every era of space travel. And like I started looking at it more and more, and like the parallels I want to draw with kind of where I see rails at and where it's going. And actually looking at the Russians compared to the Americans, where like yeah, okay, so we landed on the moon, like we we quote unquote won the space race. Mm-hmm. But where did that get us? To the moon. To the moon, right? But now it now we pay the Russians to use the Soyuz. Right. Like we've spent a lot of money on very expensive crafts, which were flashier, but ultimately were not as reliable and did not accomplish as much as the R7 family has. So now this talk is just about spaceships, basically. I think it'll go over okay. Like uh, I just read this morning that the ESA and Russia have a orbiter landing on Mars today. Oh, so they'll be uh it'll be topical. Yeah. Yeah, they got a thing here. I'm pulling it up now. They got the uh Shia Pirelli. It's a thing. They're landing on Mars. Oh, cool. I'm followed that one. Supposedly today. I don't know if it landed or not, but anyway. China just launched their first manned uh spacecraft. I saw that. Uh I saw something where they talked about they were like these men have no training, but technically they are astronauts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean you know, you know, it's funny. So by the actual definition of crewed spaceflight, America had the first crewed orbit. 
and the first crude spaceflight. Because the actual definition as defined, and like this was agreed to at the beginning of the space race, but like the International Records Committee or whatever defined it as, and the the astronaut must return to Earth with their with their craft. Right. The Soviets didn't do that for a very long time. They had ejector seats. It's pretty badass. And so like at the last second, they would shoot their their seats out of the craft and parachute back down. There, and there was no backup system. It was like if anything went wrong, everybody would have died. But they kept this a secret because it meant that technically the Soviets did not achieve the first crude, uh, any of the uh, of the first crude records America did. Huh. That's something I never knew before. Yeah. I want to go back to your talk here. So okay. I think that I think that it's interesting because you are giving a keynote. So I think you do get that leeway because like I'm looking back. I'm trying to think back at like keynotes I really like. And like when I go to RailsConf, there's always the DHH keynote where he talks about Rails and the future of Rails. And that's interesting because I'm there to hear about Rails. Yeah. But the things I, the talks I remember are things like Nicholas Means' talk about the airplanes. Right. I'm basically the, just stealing Nick Means and, and doing it with spaceships. <laughs> there you go. Or like at a Boston conference, and I think Sandy's given this other places. Sandy talk, gave a talk that was basically like, I don't think it had anything to do with programming. It was basically like the the gist of it was like we're all going to die and everybody you love is going to die. Oh yeah, I've seen this one. And it's good and it, it is. And, and it makes you think but it's not about programming and it's still really appreciated and really good. So, I think it's totally fine when you're in that keynote slot to take more chances and see what uh, see what develops. Yeah. So good luck. Know. It's also just sort of my like it's my last talk for a while, so <laughs> I want to go out with a I'm trying to think of a pun that involves spaceships. An explosion? Bank, yeah. <laughs> I want to go out with a thing that goes into orbit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So that's what I've been doing. Cool. Getting on planes, writing talks. How about you? Cool. I've been working on, still working on like that thing we talked about a few episodes ago where we're doing some sort of like user supplied query into customer records, order records that allow people to like segment their customer base. And that has gotten pretty interesting. I can't remember where we left it. We finally got to the technical like solution that we're going to use for the MVP of this, which was basically like, we're going to pre-calculate some statistics, store those in a table, and let people build up a query over that single table. Or that table joined on to like, properties about the user, like their name and email address or whatever. And we wanted to use Ransack because Ransack has like a pretty great API for doing this. They have like the search form for thing and it like creates a search form based on the fields that you say are searchable and things like that. So that was pretty cool. We had a couple of like hiccups in using it. Like you might want to create a segment that's like show me all of my customers who had their first order within the last 90 days. And so the way that that works in Ransack is like you'd want to persist an actual static date time there where you say it's 90 days ago, like, and you figure out what 90 days ago and persist that. But what we want to say is, like, we want a sliding window of 90 right. days. Now minus interval 90 days. Right. So we had to build this layer on top that, like, parses the parameters that you get from a ransack query and says, like, oh, where there's this, this string that says 90 underscore days underscore ago, before we send that off to ransack, process it, and like calculate what 90 days ago is, right? Turn that into 90 dot days ago, the method call, and substitute the value. And so we had to do this. And like the person I'm working with at, at the client is the one doing most of this work, but I'm kind of reviewing it. And every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, we had to do some pretty gross things to get inside of like the internal structure of a search in Ransack, which is basically just a giant nested hash. And the reason why we had to do that is because if we try to use the API that Ransack itself has for representing the search, it immediately ignores invalid search input. So like if you have a date time field and you give it a string of 90 days ago, it knows that that's invalid. And so it totally just like disregards that. Um, Is that I mean, I would assume that's actually just coming from it passing it through to active record. It happens before you even, I mean, at some point, like if you call ransack with this hash that has that 90 days ago, and then you call result, which is how you tell like ransack do something, and then you call to SQL, it has stripped anything. It's just that that field will just be gone from the Oh, query. yeah, I guess you're right, because active records behavior would be uh, is null in that case. Sure. So there had to be this, like, layer that was built between to transform that. That got built, and 
felt pretty pretty good about as as, re, as good as you could feel about like hacking around in this nested hash structure like knowing its internal representation of the keys and things like that and then i was pretty happy with my part of like oh okay we just now all we have to do is query over this static list of results in this table and this is pretty easy and we're done and then i wrote the tests and all the tests pass and then i in code review the person reviewing my code from the client was like actually you are querying over the wrong thing. <laughs> like, what we actually need to do is take these records, which are a record of interesting things about a user's order at every location, a user's history of orders at every location they've ever ordered at, and you need to re-aggregate those once again at runtime during the query. Because what we're not we're not interested in like show me a list of users who have ordered at any one of these locations for the first time in the last ninety days. We're interested in show me a list of these users who have ordered at any of like have have ordered their first order among all of these locations occurred in the last 90 days so we have to aggregate those results once again and those the locations are dynamic so all of this is a long way to say i got to use the from method an active record for the first time in my life the other day did it do what you expected and or needed yeah it did so like basically i wanted to what i wanted to do like I originally when I when that problem came up I was like why am I even bothering with active record? I know how to write this query in SQL. I'll just write the stupid query in SQL and we'll forget about active record. And then quickly realized that like then I can't use ransack. <laughs> so I can't take this nice user generated search thing and like easily plug it into my query. I was like okay, well I have to stay inside of inside of ransack to do this or inside of active record to do this so that I can use ransack. So then I was like all right, well I can just use from and what I ended up doing is writing the aggregation on the table that I have to do and passing that as the relation for from and then telling from, which from will take like the relation for the query that you want to do is like the, or like the name of a relation or whatever, whatever it is you want. It takes a relation and then optionally a name for that relation. And so I named the relation the same thing as the underlying table that I'm building the from, from, <laughs> right? So that ransack can still use the same table name. I mean, <laughs> that seems fine. It works. The rows returned from my aggregation are the exact same rows that are returned from the table, which is why sure. I felt okay about it. So I'm just yeah, like re-representing that table as different data. Aliases are a thing that I wish we had an API around. Mm. But like, I don't know that we could hack an API around that now. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking both of ta for table aliases and column aliases, but like since we have this hash-based API everywhere, it's hard to have meaningful objects that know about the aliases represent the the columns, which could potentially be aliased. I was actually surprised when I had to call. First of all, I was like, "Is there a from an active record?" I had no idea. I've been doing this for years, never had to use it, and I was like, "Oh, look, there is. Okay, cool." So I passed the relation, and then it broke when it started like chaining the ransack stuff on top, and I was like. Oh, it's because I so, can't. It's because I can't name it. And then I, my instinct was for some reason to message you and be like, "How do I give this thing a name?" And then, like, while I was waiting for your reply, I looked at the documentation. I was like, "Oh, the second parameter allows me to give it a name." <laughs> I was like, "Cool, this worked perfectly. It did what I wanted it to do, and I had no expectation that it would." So, is this on Rails it. five? Uh, no, Rails four two. Oh, why? Uh, <laughs> is there a bug you're about to tell me about? <laughs> There's some bugs with from in Rails 4.2. All right. Well, I haven't hit them yet, but I haven't done anything super complicated yet. I'm mostly just... Are you, are you calling dot where after calling dot from? Yes. <laughs> are you using bind parameters? Or prepared statements, rather? I mean, it's Postgres, so yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. What's your... Pro what? Let me pull it up here. I, did I fix it in 4.2? Because I remember the actual solution was a really deep refactoring that I couldn't backport. Hold on. I, I don't remember what this code looks like in Rails 4.2. So inside the relationship I passed to from would use bind parameters? Oh, you know what? Calling where after calling from should be fine. It's if you call where before you call from that you'll break everything. All right. Well, I'm not doing that. From is literally the first thing I do, and then I just call ransack on top of that. Then you should probably be fine, because from will always come before everything else. 
Have you ever seen the thing bind values appear anywhere, like in code, that usually around a thing called where values? Yes. I think you wrote code like this for us in some app that we wrote on together, but yeah. Probably. <laughs> and if I did, that code was horribly broken, as I've learned, because uh, a lot of code in Active Record was horribly broken. So it turns out that if you're ever doing anything with relation.bind values, and this is all in Rails 4.2. Bind values is not a thing that exists in Rails 5. Neither mm. is where values, because I got rid of both of them to fix this. I think, I've, um, I think I've done where values before to like simulate an or. Where I just like iterated right. over a bunch of where values and then concatenated them with or or something. Well, and so this is why I always caution people away from doing that. Because if you were doing that without also doing stuff to bind values, that code was horrendously broken. And if you were <laughs> doing stuff with bind values, that code was also horrendously broken. <laughs> so there was no way you could win. Perfect. There, no, like literally that abstraction was fundamentally incorrect. So where this started to crop up for me was I realized that anywhere in Active Record that we were doing stuff with bind values should have actually been values plus bind values. But anywhere that wasn't doing that was incorrect. I was like, what the hell is values, and why does this exist? And basically what that turned out to be was bind values from the join clause. And we were sticking that on the ARL AST. Like, literally, ARL has no concept of bind values, and this thing just got added as an adder reader on the select statement because how we handle building joins is a mess. And in fact, we still do this in Rails 5, and that code couldn't get untangled. And whoever separated this out in the first place was basically like, screw encapsulation i don't want to figure this code out which <laughs> i can't blame them for because i also like rewrote a lot of this and looked at this part of it and was also like screw encapsulation i don't want to i don't want to <laughs> figure this code out yet <laughs> but then bind values is like just this array so a, a, a trivial way to break active record in rails 4.2 is to do dot where dot having dot where why all of those calls will append to bind values okay uh the bind values from the having uh, the having clause comes after the where clause. Right. Like, oh, right. So the order will be wrong. Right. Right. And same thing with the from. When you call dot from, what we do is we take all of the bind values from the relation in the from clause and stick those at the front of bind values. Right. So we stick them at the front. So you got to make sure you put it. You put the from at the front. Right. So that it lines up. But if you do not, then things aren't going to be lined up. Yeah. Wow. Or no, I'm sorry. We put it at the back. Okay. We, I think we just, I don't, maybe we put it, I don't remember. Either what we way, do. wherever it goes, it needs to, like, you have right, to write it's, your query. It's tr you, you pretty must, trivial right, to break it. You must write your query in a manner such that the bind values are added in the same way that the SQL query, not the relation, is written, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that they match up, in their indexes match up, basically. Right. And, and now you, you just can't break it anymore in Rails 5. Um, Sounds like a challenge. <laughs> I mean, hey, if you, like, if. <laughs> Let me put it this way. If you can break it in Rails 5, please open an issue because, like, the code is now in a state where I can reasonably fix it. If you can break it in Rails 4 too, sorry. <laughs> so what does Rails 5 do for that now, then? How does it track bind values? So there were two changes that happened. So first of all, bind values in, in Rails 4.2 is an array of tuples containing a column object and the value being sent to the database mm -hmm. in Rails 5, it's now an array of attribute objects. And an attribute is an object that encapsulates a name, a type, and a value and abstracts over how typecasting occurs and when typecasting occurs. Right. So that was the first change. And then the second change is just uh, there's a lot of code that was refactored around the construction of where clauses in general. Um, so first, like, first of all, relation now has a concept of a clause internally. So... Uh, Bind values is gone. The equivalent is called bound attributes, but it's not a thing that you can write to because like there's no there's just no reason for you to arbitrarily say, and here are the values that that go in the placeholders for bind parameters. Those all come from meaningful places that have important positional information, which you can't know at any point until query construction. Mm -hmm. And so the definition of bound attributes is just from clause dot bind uh, bind values plus arl dot bind values plus where clause dot bind values plus having clause dot bind values. Okay. And all of yep. those objects then have their own mean more meaningful things that like. And then when you're constructing a where clause, yes, that is the pl that is the place where you're saying at uh, in, in the where position, here's some arbitrary things that are values for for the for the bind parameter placeholders. But like that's at a much more specific place. Right. So it's almost like the Rails 4.2 version 
just didn't consider the fact that you would also use bind values in other parts of the of the statement other than like the where where you would just continually chain them on right right i'm i'm pretty sure when the concept of bind values was originally added the only way to put stuff in there was by calling where and like naively it works if you construct your relationship it would work anyway if you construct your relationship in the same manner that you would write a sql query Right. Well, I mean, like naively, I mean, of course it works, right? Because like we use active record <laughs> and right. Like right. if it naively didn't, if, if it, like I know it's horrendously broken and it's trivial to break because that's my job, but it, right. it had like, it hasn't been breaking for everybody. You can break it, but it, it works for 90, the 99% case because right. otherwise we would know. Right. But the interesting thing is you wouldn't necessarily depend as long as the types of the values lined up, you wouldn't know that it was broken, potentially. Potentially. You know, you, I could envision a scenario where the tests pass and the types line up at during because the types line up during my test and the types will line up at, at runtime as well, but the data is different enough at runtime that I'm not getting the results back that I want. Right. There were also issues that could occur where you would end up with the wrong number of bind parameters. Uh, from things like merging relations where the number of bind parameters might change. I feel like I've seen that one before. I've been yeah. like, wait, why, what? <laughs> and then just given up and gone home. <laughs> also fixed in Rails 5. <laughs> awesome. Good job. Good work, Sean. I, I actually was really happy with, if, if, if you're interested in just seeing like what modern active record internals look like, uh, you should check out the where clause class. I don't remember if it's just active record where clause or if it's active record relation where clause, but it's one of those two. Like, where.not used to be a kind of fugly method, which is now just, it goes through the same logic that dot where does, where it there's a where clause factory, and it passes the, the values through to it, and then it just calls dot invert on the result of that, and a where clause knows how to invert itself. How do you feel about the API of where.not? Uh, I think that it could have been where underscore not, and yes. it would have simplified the implementation significantly, and had no cost of the API. Yeah. Also writing it. Every time I have to write it, I'm like, wait, what's this not apply to? And it just seems like, wait, why do I have to write where first? Like what information is where imparting that makes not work? Like I, yeah. it just, it didn't, and every time I do it, I'm like, wait, does this not now apply to the whole rest of the chain of methods that I call here? Like if I call where dot not something dot where, like is that, are those getting concatenated as inside that not? Or are they, and it, they're not, you have to be explicit about what you want wrapped in the not, 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 not. Um, <laughs> you can actually do where dot not dot where. <laughs> it's equivalent to just calling dot where. <laughs> okay, yeah. So I actually made a note that I wanted to ask you about like, hey, shouldn't this just be where underscore not? Yes. So unfortunately that's shift, i so. also am not a fan of where underscore not i think the existence of that method exposes sort of the deeper flaw in relations fundamental hash based api is that because so are you not a fan of it because like it doesn't map to the to an equivalent abstraction in sql uh i'm not a fan of it because the mental model for how i group conditions isn't the the operator that they're using and, oh, and right. that's the only reason you need not is because you want to use this nice little hash syntax and you don't want to pass a SQL fragment. Right. But right. it's like the, the whole point of where, like, right, that we, you don't, we don't have to do where in or where is null. Right. You're grouping on logical, con, like, condition. Uh, you, you, your, your mental model for grouping is going to be uh, bits and pieces of conditions, things that you'd want to put into named scopes. Right. And this forces you to randomly split some of it out because it's using a different operator, which is opposed to what we do everywhere else. Right. I've been surprised recently at how where does the right thing most of the time with this hash base. Like, like somebody showed me an example a week ago or so where it was like where, you know, location ID colon and then an array. And that does obviously where in, which is nice that it does that automatically for you. I don't know if it always did. I feel like I used to write where in like way back. Anyway, but... In this particular instance, the array contained, like, let's say, one, two, and nil. That's and, going away. Oh, wait. Hang on. Let me get to the punchline. Okay. <laughs> so I was surprised the resulting SQL said where location ID in one comma two or location ID is null. Yes. Um, 
And I was surprised that it did that. And somebody was like, well, what would you expect it to do? I said, I would expect it to have been supremely naive and just put nil inside null inside of one of the things it could be in, even though that's not valid because... Well, it's valid. It's valid, but it's not going to ever match anything because right. null in Postgres anyway, null does not equal null and it also does not not equal null. Right. Well, that's the, that's the ANSI standard. Any operation on null returns null. So why is that going? What do you mean that's going away? What's going to happen? Uh, so that's deprecated in Rails 5. In Rails 5.1, it will do what you expected. Oh, it'll just... So why is it deprecated? Just because, like, the handling of that special case was... But did it not work all the time? Like, what was no, the... No, so that was that was all fine. And the, the logic was ugly, but, like, not that big of a deal. So basically, have you ever, have you ever run into uh, parameter munging, is what it's called? <laughs> No, I like that word munge though. Okay. <laughs> have you ever have you ever noticed that any JSON request an array containing null goes through as null? Um, no. Well, that is a thing that happens. <laughs> okay, so if you have an array of one item that is an, null, an array of any number of nulls, actually, any number of nulls, nothing else, it'll just come through as null. Not an array of null, just null. Not no, not in, yeah, not an empty array, not an array of null, just null. And I believe actually. We might even strip out nulls in arrays that contain other values. Okay. Uh, and that's because comparisons on the primary key being null on certain versions of MySQL actually cause major security issues. Right. Now, the solution that ended up going in, and this was all before my time, but the solution that ended up happening there was not ideal. The alternatives also were not ideal. But basically, we have this thing that like, when you run into it, it's really confusing. And when you finally... When you finally figure out what is going on and why your tests are all failing, even worse, why your tests are passing, but uh, like it's doing <laughs> weird things in production. When you finally figure out what's going on, what you'll end up finding is an issue from Godfrey from a couple of years ago saying like, this thing is terrible. We would like to get rid of it. However, to do that, we need a proposal that addresses the, all of these concerns. Mm -hmm. The proposal that we ended up with that addresses those concerns is passing an array containing null to, to active record where does not do or is null. Right. Because it's, not, it's not a thing that, like, in practice, people tend to mean terribly often. Right. And now that we have where.or, if you actually do mean that, it's not that hard to, to, to write that now. Correct. Yeah. And so my surprise that it was handled properly <laughs> will now be met with a deprecation. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, if you pass it, if you pass it in array containing null in Rails 5, you will get deprecation warning. Right. That's interesting because, like, on one hand, like, I can totally see why that had to happen, right? Uh, why it had to be deprecated and why that decision was made that, like, we're not going to be smart about this anymore. But on the other hand, it is an impedance mismatch. Because, like, in Ruby, saying, like, you know, value is in this array and have one of the items be nil... If value is nil, it would match, right? But sure. in SQL, it doesn't match. So it just exposes like another impedance mismatch, which is like trying to hide the fact that there's an impedance mismatch between active record or any sort of ORM and the actual underlying SQL implementation. Um, right. Well, I mean, SQL idea. semantics are different than Ruby semantics. We're either going to map to one or the other. I'm right. of the opinion that we should map more closely to SQL semantics whenever possible. Cool. Sounds good. So, yeah. I mean... That said, I say that, but, you know, passing a hat like where foo colon nil is still going to do is null, not equals null. Um, right. So that's why it's going to be a little confusing. It could potentially be a little confusing that an array containing the same thing does not. Yes. It'll end up being a thing that's like a little tiny gotcha that just I don't expect many people are actually going to run into. At least not nearly as, ma as many people are running into like, hey, we do really, really weird things with arrays and nulls when we, pa when we parse par uh, JSON parameters. <laughs> it's cool that that'll fix that problem. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like, I don't know why the solution to that ended up in Action Dispatch. That's not the right place to solve a security hole in active record. <laughs> yeah. Just when you were, as soon as you started with like, I was surprised with how clever where is. I'm like, oh, I know what he's going to say. And I deprecated it. <laughs> I knew exactly where you were going. So I was like, let me get to the punchline. Hang on. Let me get to the part where I thought it was good. And then you can tell me why it's no longer. No, I totally understand that. I totally understand that decision. And now I'm just trying to think through the use case that the person was presenting where I was surprised and be like, Oh, I'm going to have to tell them, like, this is not at all going to work. 
in 5.1. Uh, but yeah. they're still on 4.2, so they've got some time. <laughs> I mean, it's also just, it's literally like, if that is a place, I think most people who are doing that, and it's a thing that they expect, first, like if you're passing user, I think the majority of the places where this happened, you're passing user input, but you never act like it's not a place where the programmer thought. And yes, if I somehow get null in this array, I would definitely like to a comparison with null here. Yeah, in this case, that's what they wanted. Like they were right. actually counting on that behavior, and it worked. Well, and so and so there. Well, there are two places, right? So the first the first case is they're actually passing like a Ruby literal array. Yes, that case is really easy. The code's actually probably clearer now with what you where with having to do dot or where. where Whatever, right. colon, no. But you can't do that until you have or, so they can't do that until they upgrade to five. Right, which is why we didn't remove it in five. It's just deprecated. Right, right. So they'll and get that's the why deprecation. We've, we've not deprecated it prior to five. Right. But then the, and then the alternative case is they're passing user input, and it's like, okay, but no, I actually want the user to be able to pass nil in here, which, first of all, like the user can't right now. <laughs> we actually literally prevent that from happening. Well, the user could pass something that you could turn into nil. Right. But then at that point, it's like, okay, so you end up having to write, like, if params foo dot include nil relation equals relation dot or where whatever right. nil, which is ugly, but... Well, that's kind of what you're going to have to do in the other case, too. Like, if you just have a scope, which is a class method or whatever, that's like, I don't know, with location, right? And you pass it an ID or an array of IDs or something like that. If you want the correct behavior, if somebody were to pass an array that contained nil you would have to inspect that array, see if it has nil in it. If it does, then also chain on an or. Potentially compact that nil out first so it doesn't have this useless nil in the query. But I would find a scope that handles nil like that with that name, or just like in general when we're dealing with arrays. I would expect if that method did things with nil, I would find that very surprising. Right. I, it, like from the caller's perspective, I would think that you would, the, the API that would be more expressive is like with location ID and you provided the two location IDs you care about, or without location ID or something like right. that. <laughs> or with location nil, even. Right. Which actually, and that is the case that OR is specifically optimized for, is writing stuff like that. Cool. No, I agree. Like, there's going to be some code that is going to be materially uglier as a result of this. It's That's the trade-off. Right. Like, there's basically never a case where I can say, like, yes, I am making this change, and I feel 100% confident that every single code base will be better off because of it. But I think that the cases that are going to be made worse by that change are fewer uh, than the number of cases that will be made better. And it removes a very common gotcha. And it lowers the maintenance burden significantly. So it's a measured trade-off, but I know I will get hate mail from somebody about. Yeah. <laughs> It'll happen. You won't get hate mail. You'll just get a very frustrated issue, which I then guess will be delivered to your email. So there you go. I, I, <laughs> I, I do get some pretty nasty emails directly without issues. Oh, that's awesome. We should read them. We should read them mean tweets. Like, have you seen um, Jimmy Kimmel's mean tweets? We should read them mean tweet style. We'll have Tom lay over um, Everybody Hurts, and you can read your mean emails. Uh, okay. I'm good. Do you have anything else to add? We could talk about adoption statistics for Rails 5, because that's a thing that I've been looking at for my talk. Okay. How is the adoption of Rails 5 going? Lower than I expected. I'm going off of what is not a great metric, but I'm just going off of download counts from RubyGems because that's like the only real. Yeah. I really wish it separated downloads from like unique gem file entries. Although I guess how do you I wouldn't even... know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but so we've got looking at Rails 5.0.0.1. Mm -hmm. um, so that was released almost exactly a month ago, a little more than a month, a month and a week ago. We have just under 500,000 downloads. Okay. 4.2.7.1, released on the same date, 700,000 downloads. 700,000 downloads? Yeah. Actually, never mind. The numbers I'm looking at are not... Uh, Rails 4.2.6, this is the number... I, I was looking at this, and I, I thought this came out in July, so after Rails 5 came out, but I was looking at the wrong version. Because 4.2.6 has uh, 2.3 million downloads, but that came out around the time Rails 5 Beta 3 came out, and I wouldn't expect those. So never mind. I'm just completely wrong <laughs> and actually like for a few months after release 500,000 versus 700,000 is very reasonable adoption numbers for me yeah so. I think that sounds pretty good like if I were somebody working on like a pretty stable rails 4.2 app now would be about the time I would be considering upgrading to rails 5 yeah because I would have trusted that like it's been a few months now and the pace of releases hasn't been super fast so like there it must be fairly stable and 
let's go for it. So start upgrading your apps. Let Sean know what breaks. Please do let me know what breaks. Tell how unhappy you are with the deprecation of nil in the array. And uh... (laughs) no, so this is actually, this is a problem for me. Like don't open an issue at this stuff. But do uh, my email is on my GitHub profile or my DMs are open on Twitter. Like if you've upgraded to Rails 5 and it was painful for reasons other than Gem X didn't work, like Gem X doesn't work. Sorry, I can't help with that. But if you, if you had pain for upgrading your application, let me know what hurt. Uh, these are things that I want to have better metrics on. Metrics aren't <laughs> the right word, but y- you know, what I mean, like I want to have a better feel for what are the problems people are running into, that kind of thing. Yeah, how much are these changes impacting the community? Like, please do let me know if you upgrade to Rails 5, how it went. If you're on public API, I think that for most apps, it should be like bump the gem file version. And probably the biggest change that will impact people is the keyword uh, arguments in controller tests. Yep. I did a whole workshop on this (laughs) at RailsConf. It wasn't recorded, but I can't show it to you. And I also have a hard time remembering what it was. There were like a handful of things but they were not tr- particularly tricky. I remember a couple of them came out and they were bugs and I fixed them there. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome. That's actually what we wanted to have happen. So I was pretty excited about that. And like a lot of it was just like chasing down how do I resolve these gem file conflicts and like, oh, this one is fixed on master. So point this at master and like... And hope that it, yeah. hope that the gem is like in a workable state right. on master. A surprising number of people have both Rails and Sinatra in their gem file. I'll just say that. Huh. I think because of things like... Uh, like rescue web or something like that one of those like or maybe delayed job web or something like that uses sinatra um Uh, it's like web interface like things like that oh and so they probably ran into rack version conflicts didn't they right or certain like gems that spin up fake servers things like that will use sinatra um in your test environment so i actually do have one other thing so this talk is going to be about keeping rails relevant Mm mm-hmm Eventually, so first, eventually, it's going to be about that. First, it's going to be about spaceships. First, it's going to be about spaceships. <laughs> first, it's going to be about why the R7 is still relevant. Uh, <laughs> but the, the overarching topic is meant to be, like, how do we keep Rails relevant? And the first question is, is Rails actually in danger of becoming irrelevant? I feel like there is that sentiment, but I want to find numbers that back it up. And so I think it's hard to find measurable metrics on this. So I think some of the less useless like download count is a pretty useless metric when you cross language boundaries comparing the number of downloads on one version of rails to another version of rails or any ruby gem to another ruby gem that were released around similar dates like i think that's a reasonable comparison but if you're comparing the number of downloads that a ruby gem has to the number of downloads a rust crate has now all of a sudden you're less measuring the popularity of those libraries and more like how much do people in those languages use CI? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of, I don't think it's a very useful metric across language boundaries. So I'm left with the two that I sort of wanted to look at were job growth mm-hmm. and GitHub contributions numbers. Uh, and by contribution numbers, I both mean number of commits and number of contributors. Okay. Neither of those are perfect metrics. Nope. <laughs> If you have, and also, if you have ideas for a better metric, please speak up, because <laughs> I don't feel great about either of those. Uh, but so job growth is an interesting one. So you, you go to Indeed job trends, right? Mm-hmm. So the first question is, is Ruby a reasonable surrogate for Rails? Yes. I agree. At this point. like, I don't think there are a ton of Ruby jobs that don't involve Rails. And depending on the job site, Rails will include things about trains. <laughs> so then here's the fun one. I don't think every node job description is going to say node. Node's also a a generic enough word that I'm fairly confident node will include things that aren't node. JavaScript is a non-starter because that includes every web development job in any backend language. Go is just literally impossible to measure against. So it's like I can compare against PHP and Python. Golang, maybe? You can... Right, but nobody says that in job descriptions. Really? Like even in the keyword fields? I guess, yeah. You will get a non-zero number... Mm-hmm. but not if you put golang into indeed but right. like either go is like not doing as well in the job market as a tyope index would like us to believe or golang is not something used in job descriptions terribly often right and then the word go was like five percent of all jobs long before the language existed <laughs> so we got php and python whatever so and that you get sort of what you expect PHP has been on a steady decline. Ruby is now... This is actually one I did not know. Ruby is now ahead of, of PHP. 
Okay. Uh, so that's cool. Uh, Ruby has been relatively stagnant for the last five years. And then Python has been on a reasonably steady rise. Why not also compare to like Java? Because that's not just a strictly like kind of, well, yeah. Why Java not? doesn't, so, because I'm trying, I'm more trying to compare Rails than Ruby. Right, but like um, Python is going to have a, like where I Python said. Python is going to have more that isn't Django. Right, I'm willing true. to concede that Ruby is Rails, but I'm not willing to concede Python, that Python yeah. is no, Django that's fair. or whatever. Uh, I do think that web is a larger portion of Python than of Java. Yes, I'll concede and just that. Ja- I, I, I don't think Java and C++ are meaningful metrics to, for us to measure ourselves against. Okay. Because like, yeah, they have like 10 times the market share that we do. Right. But then, so GitHub stats were interesting to me. So I was looking at contributor numbers. So uh, Ruby had, looking at the last month, uh, like 150 or something. I could pull these numbers up, but just trying to remember them. I was like 150 or so commits from 20 people over the last month. Uh, you look at Rust, you look at Go, they both had closer to 100 contributors and closer to six to 700 commits. Python was clo- was almost exactly where Ruby was. It was a, it had I think one and a half times the number of contributors and like slightly fewer commits. And then Node was sort of somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And that like I guess kind of mapped to what I expected. Like Ruby is not a terribly accessible project. I do think that's a problem that like we as a community need to address for the longevity of the language. Mm-hmm. Not to say that like a language has to be accessible and have a ton of contributors to be successful. The majority of the languages that are successful right now aren't, but the languages that we're seeing on the rise are taking a newer approach that try to make themselves more accessible to a larger portion of their, their community. I think there's a number of ways that we can address that. But then, so I started to look at the web frameworks, and I couldn't find anything. The only framework I could find that came close to Rails on that metric was Django. Right where Django is at about 80% of Rails activity. Everything else was an order of magnitude below. And I looked at, for everything I could think of, uh, Spring, Laravel, Express has had no commits in like six months, which like Express is weird to include in that comparison to begin with, but I wanted to put come up with something from Node. Mm-hmm. Uh, Go, like, I think most people use the thing from its standard library, and none of the web frameworks that I could find for Go had much activity. I looked at Play, I think I might have looked at one or two others, but those are the only ones I could really think of to, to compare against. And like nothing came close to Rails. I did not expect that. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm thinking I'm thinking about it as a person who's now been doing Rails for years. Like I was going to say. Oh, it's I pretty... looked at Phoenix and Elixir and all of those comparisons as well. Right. Sorry, I actually I, I looked at Phoenix the other day to see like how many commits do you need to Phoenix to be like among the top? But it's not a lot. No. You know? No, I mean, Phoenix was actually near the bottom. Uh, Elixir was around the same activity as Ruby, but Phoenix was was much lower. Yeah, I mean, it, the whole project only has 3500 less than 3500 commits. So like yeah. it's not it's not a very old project. And 300 only 314 contributors total. So um let's see. Getting two commits could potentially get you onto the first page of committers. <laughs> <laughs> three commits think- three commits will definitely do it. I think I had to get a thousand commits on Rails before that happened. <laughs> right. It'll. I mean, it'll get there someday. I think. I don't no, know. I, I'm sure. Like. Right. I don't know. It's one of these things. Like, the more I look into numbers on this, though, I don't buy the sentiment that Rails is somehow dying out or falling behind. Like, there are there are things that we need to that we need to address, especially around HTTP two. Mm-hmm. But like, I think a lot of the sentiment is just coming from. People aren't writing blog articles about how they chose Rails for their startup in 2016 because nobody cares that you chose Rails for your startup in 2016 because it's a right. pretty reasonable decision at this point. Yeah, I don't think that that's... I've, I've always kind of thought that that talk was oversimplifies things quite a bit, that like such and such is dying. The Java I mean, I, Java is dying or whatever. Like it's not dying. Java's fine. Like, well, I felt that as well, but I also can't trust my opinions on that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, I guess. It's worth Ra- looking at the Rails Rails contributor thinks that Rails isn't dying. <laughs> Headline of the month. Uh, right. You know, I, I I need to do my due diligence to back up any statements on that. I think and... it's I think it's fair to say I wouldn't say it's dying. I just say it's maturing, right? Like right. I and think I, those and are I agree. different. Like that's totally fine. 
<laughs> just the, the numbers matched up with that assessment more closely. Like I expected it to be that they pointed vaguely towards that, but then after looking at the data, felt a little bit more worried was what I expected to have happen. And that was not what happened. Well, not that this is like the only meaningful data, but I don't know. I guess it's just acknowledging that we're not shiny anymore. And like, I think, you know, the, the other thing is it's not fun to make a new Rails app anymore. I don't think it's because like Rails has somehow made itself less fun, but it's just like... It's not the new shiny anymore. <laughs> right, but that, I mean, I, I guess saying it's not fun is, is hardly less like demeaning, but like, you know, I feel like saying, oh, you just don't like, you're just using Elixir because it's newer and shinier than Rails gives less weight to the actual psychological process behind that. Uh, that's a large part of the process for me, right? Like, <laughs> like I will admit to that being like, I think there are excellent reasons to use Elixir and Phoenix, and I do really like them. But a large part of my interest in it was like, meh, something different. Yeah. Right. And let's see it's how fun. let's see how this how they approach these similar problems. Like I still have the same problems I'm solving. How do the solutions look if I write them in this? And yep. it turns out they look in many ways the same, but in many interesting ways different. Yes. Um, and I want you to steal some of the different, <laughs> but it's, but backwards compatibility is hard. I was just going to say, like, I'm looking through the contributor thing on Phoenix. Like I was doing this the other day cause I was like, wow, you could become like a top contributor to Phoenix just by like really digging in and trying to understand things and like getting involved. I mean, there's 18 open issues. It's not like <laughs> they're not at the scale that Rails is at right now, but like just digging in there and like contributing in the issues and like maybe solving some documentation things and you could pretty quickly rise up the, the thing there. But one of the nice things about it is like, so at the top, there's Chris McCord, who's the original author of the framework and has 1100 some odd commits. And there's uh, Jose who has 670 commits. And then there's like a big drop off. And what's kind of nice about that is I bet that I could look through this code base and it has one style and it has like understanding the reasons behind the way something was built in some part probably leads to some consistency of understanding like how the whole thing is put together. I 100% agree, but that just comes from the youth of a project like universally. Right, right. and that's going to change, right? That's, yeah. that's what I'm going to say. But like right now is actually probably a really interesting time to jump in and start reading the source of Phoenix because you're going to get like a coherent story, whereas two years from now, you're probably not. I actually think that once something becomes a little bit more legacy, that's when it becomes more interesting. Like that's when you get to find the battle scars and actually like. <laughs> sure, it's see... interesting in a different way. Yeah. 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 I guess I guess it's my Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> Rust, though, you know, just speaking of the scale of issues, like Rust has ended up very quickly on a whole nother level because it's got sixty thousand commits and three thousand issues. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has a, it, it, that's something I think you also wouldn't be able to say, like, people who are doing Rust are doing web pro, like, the vast majority of people are not, probably. Right? right, no, no, not at all. But it's a space that's actively it, looking to expand itself into. You know, Rust is sort of cheating because they have more than half, I think they have eight or nine full-time people working on it. Right. Three or four of whom are on the core team. Right. But that was just a thing that I'd been thinking about that I thought would be interesting to just. All right. Well, good luck with your talk. Thank you. I hope I don't have to give it in Russian. That would, that would make it go less well. Don't criticize the government. <laughs> right. Um, show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 85. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>